0: So we've been in this series called Colony and and we framed it not so much in a statement but in a question. What does it mean for us to be the people of God in the 21st century? What does it mean for us to really be the hands and feet of Christ? To be guided by the Spirit and to meet the world as it actually is. To be able to see it for what it is, and then begin to ask those questions within community and through the Spirit that help us meet those things with a kingdom mindset. And it's been so amazing seeing and hearing the conversations that are coming up in our community, even if people don't completely agree with what's being said from stage. And in fact, I would insist on that that we don't just uh, blindly agree with whatever is being said just because I'm the pastor or whatever it might be, but to really listen and wrestle and go before the Lord and seek his countenance and guidance on these things. And so tonight I want to talk about something um, that's just really uh, a beautiful example of kingdom mentality to me and what I hope is continuing to be that for our community as well. And so this is kind of my thesis statement for tonight. The colony of God is the place where the least of these find home. The colony of God, the outpost, the the culture of heaven is the place where the least of these find home. And so, of course, I want us to talk tonight about what least of these is. I want to talk about why why, because of the way the world is, we even have a label like least of these. I want to talk about what God's heart is for people who are in those categories, and then I want to talk about for us as a church, as his people, what should be our response uh, to loving as God loves. But we, before we go any farther, we need to define what the term least of these is, because we see that um, throughout the ministry of Jesus, but it's not inherently defined. It's something we have to kind of infer from the way in which Jesus treats people. And so I've kind of boiled down to this, who is our least of these? Whoever them is to you. Whoever them, whenever you think about them over there, that group of people or that person that you would rather not really associate with, that's your least of these. And that's what I want us to really look at tonight. Least of these is less a category based on someone's external definitions, and it's more about a posture of our heart. It's about us having an aversion to a person or a group of people that makes us want to keep them at arm's length. So my main passage that I want us to look at tonight is the parable of the mustard seed from Matthew chapter 13. Um, This chapter in general is Jesus giving all of these different parables that speak about what the kingdom of heaven is really like. And it's like a diamond in that the more that we encounter these different parables, the more we see all of the different facets of the diamond as we continue to turn it. And so Jesus says, you know, the kingdom is kind of like this, and it's also kind of like this, and it's also kind of like this. And as we gather those together, we find this beautiful uh, description of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. And this one, to me, is so powerful. So this is Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And a lot of times we interpret this on a very individual level, that this is about personal salvation and it's about faith, that at some point in your journey, God has planted a seed in the middle of your soul, in your heart, and it's grown in you and it gradually becomes more and more of who you are. And I'm not saying that that's a bad definition uh, or interpretation of this parable, but I think that there's a larger connotation to what Jesus is inviting us to see here that has kind of global implications. And so first of all, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And what is the significance of that? A mustard is is a really interesting plant, but it's this very small, very ordinary seed And mustard, as a plant, exists in that kind of nebulous region between what we consider good crops and then what we consider flat-out weeds. That mustard is sort of in the middle there. It's not something that's necessarily cultivated, but it's also not just some flat-out weed. It has some use to us. And so he talks about the kingdom being like this mustard seed, small and insignificant and, and not particularly remarkable. But then he says, the man takes it and plants it in his field, and though it's the smallest, it grows, and it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. And if you've ever seen a mustard plant, it's, again, halfway between being a proper tree and kind of like a bush or a creeping bush. And so the, the visual that Jesus is giving us here is a very small and insignificant beginnings that as it grows, it gradually spreads out and overtakes the entire garden and it becomes the new normal, that the, the, the kingdom of heaven becomes the new reality that we see on the entire face of the earth. And this is the really beautiful thing, I think just as remarkable as that image of the mustard seed growing into a plant that takes over the entire garden, this final bit that the birds come and perch in its branches. And the word that Jesus uses there doesn't have a connotation of birds that we think about wanting in our garden, like blue jays and robins and all of those kind of birds that we, you know, we set up little bird feeders and they're the ones that we want because it kind of makes for a prettier garden. The word there he uses can be better translated as fowls. So think about like, you know those European starlings, if you've ever been like in a parking lot or maybe you've been sitting outside a Greek corner and they're like nasty and they have that like really loud, obnoxious sound they're brown and they jump all over the place and eat your French fries. You know the ones I'm talking about? Those, like that's what Jesus is talking about. Those kind of birds that are more of a nuisance and a pest and we don't really want them in our gardens because they mess things up and they eat off of our trees and they kind of mess with our crops. And those are the kinds of birds that Jesus is talking about here. That when the kingdom of heaven, from the smallest and most insignificant of seeds, grows into the greatest tree of all and gradually spreads out and takes over the entire garden, it also becomes the place where the undesirables, the outcasts, the not good enoughs, finally come and they find rest. And this is so much at the core of the heart of Jesus for humanity. Earlier in Matthew 11, he says this Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is how Jesus builds his church. This is how Jesus builds his church. From the smallest and most insignificant and overlooked little aspects of humanity, he builds something beautiful. And not only does he build something beautiful, but he builds something that all of the rejects and the misfits and the not good enoughs can come in and find home. And what is it that even gives us that burden where we we feel that need to come to Jesus because we're weary and heavy laden? Why do we have such a hard time seeing people the way that God does and that we judge people according to the standards of the world? And I believe that it's this. The quest for power leads us to measure human beings by the competitive systems of the world. So often in this series of Colony, we've been talking about hierarchy and tribes. We talked about, especially with tribes, even Cole last week, that there's something beautiful about our desire for a tribe because we want to find a place that we belong that people speak the same language as us and they dress the same way that we do, and it just feels familiar. But so often what happens when we, when we transverse into tribalism is that in order for us to protect our identity as a tribe, we have to treat them over there with hostility. And as Cole pointed out last week, it's because uh, we believe that there's a scarcity of resources. There's not enough to go around. And so in order to protect ourselves and build ourselves up, we, we need to, to push them away and we need to enter into competition with them over there in order to define ourselves. And I think this is so matched with our earthly understandings of what success is. So not only do we divide ourselves into tribes, but even within our own tribes, we establish these ranking systems, these hierarchies based on some sort of human standard of who's in and who's out, who's valuable and who's not. Again, just Think back to to middle school lunch tables. And this is what we did. We organized ourselves into neat little tribes according to our clothing and, and the food that we like or the language that we use or the music we listen to or whatever it is. But even within each of our tribes, there was some sort of ranking system of who was top dog and who was at the bottom. And it's usually based on who's the smartest or who's the strongest or who's the most beautiful or who's the most talented. And and somewhere along the line, we've all agreed to these social contracts that are inherently based upon competition in order to find success. And I think a lot of times, marketing in the world actually operates according to this standard, that marketing sells us a false notion of power and success. That marketing in our culture so often says, if only you had this car, if only you purchased this product, if only you used this on your hair, if only you took these classes, then maybe you would begin to match up. Maybe then you would begin to find some sort of value in the systems that we've already established that we're asking you to perform for. And so much marketing starts with that. Number one, you're not enough as you are. And number two, I've got the answer to sell to you in order to help you become enough so that you can be loved, so that you can be cherished, so that you can have value. And so much of marketing operates on that, saying, I've got the secret potion that can make you God. I've got what you need in order to find that kind of power. And we find ourselves every day in that same crisis that faced Eve in the garden, that the snake comes to her and sells her something that was accurate but not true. That if, if you were to eat of this tree, if you were to eat this fruit, then you will be just like God. And who among us could say no to that? But when we step into those kind of performance-based systems where we need to compete with one another in order to find more value, in order to find more home, We actually perpetuate the fall, what happened after the fall of Adam and Eve. There was automatically competition and violence and comparison and all of these things quickly spiraled out of control and we found ourselves in the place that we're at now. And the unfortunate thing is that so often we apply those mentalities of the world into the kingdom of heaven. And we have this place of arrogance where we begin to judge the raw qualities of the kingdom by these broken standards. The two letters that, are, that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, this is something that they were struggling with. That this was a church full of very gifted people um, that had a lot of wealth and power and influence and things that they were given by God. But the way in which they held those things was actually causing tribalism. It was causing division within the church. It was causing them to use human standards to rank people based on what their spiritual gifts were or whether or not they followed Paul or Apollos or Peter, whomever it might be. And it was leading to all of this division based on these hierarchies and tribalism. There's people taking advantage of the gifts that God had given them. But a couple weeks ago when I was preaching on nonviolence, I talked about how Paul actually posits that it wasn't God coming in with the bigger stick that sent everything right. It wasn't God coming in with a demonstration of his power and awesomeness and how everybody needs to listen to him and he's going to beat up anybody who gets in his way. But it was the weakness of God that rescued the world. It was God losing the argument. It was God emptying himself of identity in order to open up the path to relationship and deliverance for each of us. And it was Christ crucified. The grace that's offered to us through Christ crucified. Christ losing the argument on our behalf that nullifies all of the hierarchies and the divisions and the violence of the competitive systems of the world and brings us back into intimacy with God and a full revelation of who we are, that we are the beloved, that we are enough just as we are, because we are his image. And so when we narrow that down to least of these, what is God's perspective? God gives special privilege to the least of these in his kingdom. Now we see over and over again in the scriptures that God says, Uh, That he shows no favoritism, that he does not favor one human being or one tribe over and above another. But what that means is that in practice, God gives special privilege to the overlooked and the ostracized and the ones that are on the outskirts. You know, a lot of times when we read Jesus saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we think that God is inverting these hierarchies and that the people that are at the bottom are now at the top and the people that are at the top are now at the bottom. But when we realize that God's heart, he doesn't show favoritism, that he loves us all. He gives special privilege to the least of these in order to raise them up, to give them special privilege so that they can meet the rest of us. And we talk about how the the ground before the cross is level ground because we're not judged according to our sin and we're not judged according to all of our talents and gifts, but we're judged according to being the image of God. And so in the Old Testament, we see this time and again. In Deuteronomy 10, for example, the Lord says this, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And time and again in Scripture, God highlights these three categories the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. And there's always been this expectation that God's people would give special privilege to those kind of folks because in any other civilization, they would find themselves on the outskirts, not taken care of, and they would gradually drift away into nothingness. And so it's the commission for us as the church, as the people of God, to care for widows, orphans, and foreigners in the literal sense. But I believe that there's also a spiritual connotation to those three categories that speaks so profoundly to the heart of God. First is that of the widows, and I want to kind of take the liberty to attach widows um, with divorce. That there's been a loss of a relationship, that someone has been left alone because of something that's happened. Perhaps somebody has died, but in that spiritual sense, um, a divorce is, is, is the death of a relationship, right? The divorce is the death of the other person in your life because that covenant doesn't exist anymore. And so perhaps we can read the spirit of the widow of, as, as those who have been disappointed or let down or betrayed by a relationship that doesn't exist anymore. You know, for the literal widow, it's, it's the disappointment of, of having lost someone they loved. But for the divorcee, it's the disappointment of having that covenant broken and someone walk away and a premature death to a relationship. And secondly is the orphan. The orphan is the spirit of abandonment. The orphan is, is that within us that was left alone because we weren't good enough because we didn't match up with someone's expectations of who we're supposed to be. And they abandoned us and they left us by the wayside because we didn't measure up. And then finally, the spirit of the foreigner. Who is the foreigner but the one who is lonely among us? The foreigner wanders in loneliness looking for home, looking for a place to root themselves and to find solace in community. And so we're called to those three kinds of people literally, but we're also called to to tend to those kinds of spiritual widows and spiritual orphans and spiritual foreigners. Now when we go into the New Testament and we look at the story of Jesus, we see Jesus using the same category of the least of these and the ostracized, and he gives us a few more people that fit in that timeline. Often when he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says, I tell you the truth, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That prostitutes were considered outside because they were too dirty for normal society because they've compromised in some way. And tax collectors were seen as betraying the Jewish people and working for the enemy. Jesus often talked about Samaritans, whether it was in his engagement with Samaritan people or telling parables, where the Samaritan was actually the hero of the story. And those are kind of the, um, you know, the, the ostracized family member that you would rather not admit they actually exist. That's what Samarian, Samaritans were for Israel, that they, they kind of worshiped God, but they got everything wrong. They did it all the wrong way. And so Israel had a tremendous disdain for Samaritans. But Jesus interacted with Samaritans and loved them and made them the hero of his stories. And often Jesus pointed to children and to women, people that in the, in the day and in the culture were seen as little more than property, and talked about their tremendous value and worth. Even at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, what we call the Beatitudes, and Jesus doesn't give one of those prescriptive sermons that perhaps you've heard, and it kind of starts like, if only you would do these, here's a five-step program for you to have a better life, Right? Perhaps we've heard those, perhaps we've given those, I don't know. But there's those prescriptive sermons that are like, yes, okay, if you do these things, then you'll measure up, and if you really try hard and you really think yourself into this kind of mentality, maybe you'll get it. Maybe you'll arrive. Maybe you'll be approved before God. But see, Jesus, I don't think he actually went to seminary because he didn't learn that that's what preaching's all about. That's a joke, by the way. You can laugh, it's okay. Lucy-goosey, we're all family here. But where does Jesus start in the Beatitudes? He says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who desire mercy. Because in their culture, a lot like ours, the have-nots were told, you must be cursed by God because you don't have And conversely, the people that had power and privilege and wealth, all these things, oh, they're obviously blessed by God. But Jesus came to muddle up that whole system and say, it's not as obvious as it seems. Because the people that are blessed are those who are actually in the best position to recognize their need for God. And they're the people that have their ears open to hear God. When Christ comes as the embodiment of God and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Their ears are already open to hear that. Because Jesus affirms them where they're at rather than prescribing some sort of formula in order to build a better life. And I wonder, even for us today, who are our least of these? And I'm talking about not just culturally, but also personally. And these are people that have little value in the competitive systems of the world. I think one of the revolutions that we've been going through over the past even 50 years is our treatment of handicapped people. That up until the middle of the last century, we took people that were profoundly mentally or physically handicapped and we literally hid them from society so that we didn't have to look at them. So that we didn't have to admit that they were there, and we institutionalized them and put them into these giant boxes with grates over the windows, hiding from them. And it's been such a beautiful revolution over the past half decade to see our our society finally say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, the profoundly handicapped are human beings, and that we should cherish them as such. And I want to see us do that even more as a society, I want to see us continue to pursue and seek out who are those that we've pushed out and we've dehumanized. And what does it look like for us to engage them culturally, but also personally, to see them and offer them the dignity of being a human being? Because ultimately, what is God's desire for all people, but especially our least of these and the not good enoughs? I think that God's desire is to see all people live as whole and complete human beings. Because the competitive systems of the world have told us, you're not whole yet. You're missing something. You're lacking something. You're not good enough yet. And so if you perform, and if you measure up to our value system, then maybe you'll make it. But God gives special privilege to the least of these because he's saying, no, you are enough. Because you're my child. Because you're beloved. You you measure up. You're good enough. And so what does this radical value system that God gives us as his followers mean in the way that we conduct ourselves? A healthy church is measured by its special care for those whom Jesus loved. Next week, um, our dear friend Logan and I are gonna be co-teaching. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about as we've been looking at this idea of justice as a form of worship is that true worship, like true prayer, forms us into the likeness of Christ. That's the measure of what good worship looks like. You know, I love coming in here on a Sunday or, you know, in a couple of weeks when we gather with the men from Central Care and we worship and seeing people raise their hands and just be so passionate. Like, that's so beautiful. But the real work of worship and prayer is what happens the next day and what happens in a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years down the road of entering into disciplines of worship. Are we changed? Are we transformed? Do we look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday because of our worship, because of our prayer lives? And the beauty of this is that when we worship Jesus and we become more like him, we begin to seek things the way that Jesus does. And we begin to care for people the way that Jesus does. And we care for the specific kinds of people in the way that Jesus has invited us to do that. In the first century, the Romans practiced something called exposure, and it has nothing to do with what we do on the first Sunday of every month where we're sharing about who we are as a community. But this Roman practice of exposure was that when a baby was born and it didn't measure up, that it wasn't of the right gender, and you can go ahead and probably guess which gender is not the preferred one. Go ahead, guess. This is uh call and response portion. Female, right, okay, someone get a banana sticker for Hunter, she got it right. Um, if 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 a if a child was born female or if they were deformed in some way, or if the family just didn't want them, they practiced a, a socially acceptable system called exposure. And they would take those newborn babies and they would put them in the city dump or they toss them in the sewer because they weren't good enough. And what we, we have documented evidence of is these early followers of Jesus, perceived as some sort of weird Jewish sect, would intentionally go out into the city dump, into the city sewers, and gather up these children and raise them as their own. Because the early followers of Jesus understood the tremendous value that God placed on all human life, independent of what they could even contribute to supposedly normal and functioning society. And so many of those babies grew up and they became our church mothers and fathers. The people that that wrote these amazing expositions on scripture and revealed the reality of who God was and established the foundations of what we sit on as the church even 1,900 years later. And that call hasn't changed. That's still in the DNA of who we are as the people of God. To see those who have been cast out, to see those who aren't good enough, and to come alongside of them and say, no, you have tremendous value, and we're going to invite you into our community and treat you the way that God desires to. But we have to push out the poison of the systems of the world that taint our attitude towards other people. We have to overcome this Pharisaic mindset. And what do I mean by that, In the Pharisaic mindset? This is how it looks in practice we all come in here together on a Sunday and we all kind of look the same and we all kind of talk the same and we sing all the same worship songs and we feel really good because we're learning about God and we're learning about community and we pat each other on the back for a job well done and we're so loving and we're so kind and we're so gracious and then they walk in the door. Them. Them ones. Those guys. And they don't really look like us. They don't really talk like us. They don't really seem to value the same things that we do and they don't really seem to be trying that hard or whatever it might be, whatever the standard is that somehow we've all agreed that, that makes us awesome. And there's kind of three, in our Pharisaic mindset, there's three options we have in dealing with our least of these when they enter into our space. The first is just to flat out reject them and to say, no, you can't come in here. You can't come in here because you don't measure up. First, you need to go away and you need to clean yourself up and get yourself figured out and then maybe you can come and be part of our community. So the first one is rejection. The second is assimilation. And assimilation is almost a little bit more nefarious and it says, yes, we'll love you and grant you value but only if you start to talk more like us. Only if you start to behave a little bit better and more like us so that you're more palatable to us so we can actually stomach the fact that you're part of our community. And so there's this kind of conditional love and performance that we've inherited from the world and we've established those standards within the church. And then the third is what we can maybe call the new tolerance, which is a, which is a poison in our contemporary society, which says you can be here, uh, but we'll kind of hold each other at arm's length. And you can believe what you want to believe and we'll believe what we want to believe and everybody's basically right, which is really to say, eh, nobody really is right. None of us really believe what we're saying that we believe. But we enter into that kind of weak new tolerance um, that doesn't really address anything. It doesn't lead people closer to God, and it doesn't open us up to encounter one another. But to encounter our least of these in such a way that we overcome our Pharisaic mindset, that we enter into true communion with those people that we have a natural aversion to, I think is so powerful, because that's what I think the kingdom of God is. Is made of. And so I want us to take a moment and we're just going to come before the Lord and invite the Spirit to reveal to us who our personal least of these are. And I'm not talking about a conceptual group that's out there. I want to challenge you all to think about specifically within our church, within our community, is there a group or is there an individual that maybe you actively avoid? That maybe when they walk in, you start to feel really uncomfortable because their presence is beginning to ask questions of you that you'd rather not ask. That maybe I'm not as loving as I think that I am. Maybe I'm not as gracious as I think that I am. And it's causing you to to reject them or ignore them or try to change them and dress them up so you can stomach them a little better. And so we're going to pray. And the beauty of this is that God already knows who your least of these are. And yet he still wants to be with you. So there's no condemnation in this, but there is an invitation to open ourselves up and to get to allow the light of God to shine into some things that we can kind of admit before the Lord and begin to move forward. So I'm going to pray. We're just going to take a moment and allow the Lord to speak to us. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the safe place that you've created in this church to come before you in honesty. Um, Desiring to change, to grow, to become more like your son Jesus, to look more like him every day and to see like he does and to care like he does. And so, Holy Spirit, we come before you now um, with open minds and open hearts, without fear of condemnation, but a desire to continue the journey of going deeper into who you are. And Lord, would you give each of us right now a name? or a face of a person who, if we would admit it, are actually our least of these. Because they make us feel uncomfortable. They make us kind of want to avoid them or turn the other way or whatever it might be. Give us those names right now, Lord. Thank you, Father. Yeah, Lord, even... Lord, just through the the rest of this message, begin to speak to us about what it looks like to cross over those dividing walls that we've set up between us and another person um, and to love them as you do, without agenda, to seek genuine communion with our own personal least of these, and in doing so to see the reality of who you are manifest in that place all the more. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you need to go ahead and and make yourself a note there, go ahead, because we'll be using that later. Uh, But we were talking about this in the teaching team uh, on Thursday, and and, uh, my friends brought up a really good point here. Um, I'm not talking about boundaries in the healthy sense that we establish with someone. But if we create boundaries between us and another person because we're trying to avoid them, then we're in the wrong. Our boundaries established with other human beings, especially those we're in community with, should always be manifest out of love because we have kingdom value for that other person. And that should guide the kind of boundaries that we'll establish with people that we're in community with. But that's different than avoidance. If we're avoiding someone because we're afraid of them or they make us uncomfortable, then we really need to re-examine why those boundaries are there in the first place. So some of you were with us when we were at SAC Comedy Club downtown for a couple years. And we saw this in practice that, you know, being right in the heart of downtown, we had a a lot of homeless folks coming into our Sunday night gatherings. And it really had a lot of us um, asking these kinds of questions. What do we do when the least of these walk in? When they stop being concepts that we've read about and actually become people that are set in front of us. What do we do when someone stands up in a church service, and drops their pants, which actually happened. What do we do in those situations? And it was so fascinating watching our community, especially some individuals, really seeking to cross over that dividing wall of hostility and prejudice and to authentically love people. Because what happens a lot of times with our least of these is that we ostracize them when they're a concept. But then when they're in front of us, they're a real human being. And we have to begin to ask those questions about how do we love and how do we offer dignity. But what happens a lot of times is we can cross over that line where we've ostracized a person as a concept and we've turned them into a ministry project where there's still a concept. There's still not a human being. And we actually uh, become very permissive or very weak in the love that we're offering to them. But to stand in the middle is for us to ask the beautiful questions and be guided by the Spirit of God to say, Lord, show me how you see this person and teach me how to love like you would love in a way that offers them dignity, yet also calls them higher. And it was amazing to see that in, uh, in our church a couple years ago as we, as we kind of wrestled with this idea of least of these and really authentically loving the people that are coming in. Because even as Jesus says, you know, we're talking about hospitality, you never know when you might be entertaining angels in disguise. I think there's a song about that. How's it go? I guess you guys are all too young to remember newsboys. I don't know, Rob, you know what I'm talking about. Entertaining angels by the light of something. I don't know. I feel like that song comes up every three months in our church. But that's the place where we begin to ask beautiful questions. And my final point is this, the least of these will teach you so much about the kingdom and character of God. Because God uses our personal least of these to bring his truth in some really beautiful and surprising ways, and actually to bind us closer together as his community. So, In Corinthians, as I mentioned, Paul talks about Christ crucified. The weakness of God on display is the way by which he rescued the world and opened us up to relationship with God. And he continues on in 1 Corinthians, he says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And he's challenging, again, that arrogance in the church of Corinth, that it's our knowledge and it's our gifts and it's our privilege that actually makes us better than other people and gives us the justification to judge according to human standards. And that kind of arrogance makes us unteachable because we're determining who we think is worthy of our attention, who's worthy of of our energies, And we go along again in those human systems and we break down these kinds of people, the people I want to learn with, and I don't really value them and they don't have much to teach me. But I think that's the beautiful irony of the least of these among us is they can be the powerful place where God teaches us new things about his kingdom and his character. Because when when we try to love people out of arrogance, it's pity. We're saying, oh, if only you were up here where I am. If only you had the level of privilege or the level of knowledge or even like the church in Corinth, if only you had the spiritual gifts that I have and you were able to raise up to my level, would you maybe get it? And you'd be in the good graces of God. But do you know what the difference between pity and compassion is? It's humility. It's humility in recognizing that we too need a Savior. And so encountering the weakness of others invites us to acknowledge our own need for a presence. So much of advertisement, so much of the competitive systems of the world tell us that weakness is a liability and that we have to to present ourselves to the world as strong and capable and awesome. And even sometimes when we give our testimonies to the world, that's how we present them that we were once in dire straits and we were terrible and awful human beings, but look at where we are now and look at our privilege and look how great we are. And what we're really saying when we tell our stories in that way was, I used to need God when I was a total mess, but I'm fine now. And there's been something in the church that said, You need to be the best and the brightest and the strongest and the most capable and don't you dare show any cracks. Don't you dare show any weakness or else somehow that's going to reflect poorly on Jesus. And we just step right back into that performance mentality where I have to project an unreal understanding of what it means to be a Christian in order to be the best representation of the healer of healers of the Savior of the entire world, the God who continues to work in us and through us. And I think we're afraid of weakness for this very reason, because weakness invites us to reflect back on our own weakness and our own needs. I think this is why so many of us have aversions to children, and we have aversions to the handicapped, because to recognize them as, as, as weak is to recognize our own weakness as well because we would rather define ourselves according to our strengths and our talents and in doing so, we idolize these beautiful gifts that God has given us. Uh, You've heard me talk before about the philosopher Jean Vanier, and over the past 50 years, what he's done is established these communities all over the world, there's over 160 of them now, where profoundly handicapped people are welcomed in to live in community with people who want to live alongside of them and love them just as they are. And they've rescued so many people from those institutions where they're hidden from society and they're given tremendous value. And he told this story once that the, the, the house that they have in Montreal, there were several Catholic bishops that came along to see the community and understand how it operates. And this bishop sat down and they brought over this little 13-year-old boy who, you know, we would degrade him by calling him a vegetable. And he could not speak, he could not hear, he could not speak, he could not really move around very much. And he was just a tiny little frail boy, much smaller than his 13 years would convince you of. And they took this little boy and they put him in the arms of the bishop and the bishop held him and immediately felt this little boy trembling, not out of fear, but out of the joy of being touched because it was the only way that he understood love. And when they came back around and it was time for the bishops to go, they came back to this guy and tears are just streaming down his face and he couldn't let go of this precious child because he had seen the face of God in weakness. You see, that's the beauty of us being willing to cross over the dividing wall of hostility and to love our least of these, not out of a prescriptive way and not out of pity, but to come alongside of them and to love them as God loves them, because it reflects back to us the truth of our own value, that we are each the beloved of God. It's not what we do, It's not our ability to perform. It's not our talents that define us, but that we are simply loved by God. Paul understood this so beautifully. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And Paul understood this kingdom paradox that we have such a hard time understanding in our American culture that weakness and the power of the Spirit are not mutually exclusive. That we don't have to pretend to be strong and capable and the best and the brightest and we don't have any problems in order to be the beautiful place where the power of the Spirit of God is fully demonstrated But in fact, it's our ability to recognize and admit to and own our own weakness that opens us up to be that kind of power. Elsewhere, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong, and I glory in my weakness. This becomes the place where God's power is made manifest. Two weeks or three weeks ago now, the Monday right after the Orlando shooting, I was interviewed um, on a radio station in Chicago and they asked about what's been going on here in the ground. And they said, how can the churches all around the nation be praying for you and coming alongside of you? And I said, yes, please, of course, be praying for us, Absolutely. I said, but my challenge to the churches nationwide is that you would all begin to look around at your own neighborhoods and begin to identify your own least of these because it should not take a tragedy of this magnitude for us to recognize the people that we have ostracized. And I believe that this is the time for the church to step up and atone for the sins of 30 years ago when the HIV-AIDS crisis broke out in the gay community and the church backed away because we were afraid because we didn't want to love them, because the cry went out from our brothers and our sisters and our aunts and our uncles and our schoolmates, and we did not respond. And this is the opportunity for us to step back in and to atone for those sins and begin to love as God loves. It's a lot harder to love someone when they're a concept, when they're just an idea that we keep at arm's length, It invites so many questions and so much tension when we begin to engage with our own personal list of these, but my friends, I believe that it is the pathway to heaven. It is the place that you will meet God in ways that you never thought possible. And I have a vision that we would be a church that welcomes whoever finds their way through our doors that we would be able to offer them the dignity of being a human being that we would love them and cherish them and walk alongside of them and we would lead them into living relationships with a God and Father of all who affirms us where we are and says you're enough just recognize that you are my image that you are my children and that you are enough and that we would see amazing things happen in that place that's the vision for the kind of church That I want us to be a church built out of least of these that is geared towards the least of these that we would see the kingdom of heaven move from being the tiniest and most insignificant of seeds into a beautiful tree that stretches out over the entire garden and becomes the place where those on the outside find rest so if you would stand with me please tonight we're going to come to the lord's table because it's at his table, that's the great equalizer for all mankind. That when we come to the table of God, when we participate in holy communion and we we drink of his blood and we eat of his body, all of our best and brightest and our talents and our achievements don't mean anything. And all of our sin and the places that we've fallen short, it doesn't mean anything. We come to the table and we put all of those things aside and we sit across from our heavenly father And we hear that one thing, you're you're beloved, you're enough. And the table is the great equalizer for all of us, that we all come together, great and small, powerful and weak, and we hear that same thing, that we are enough. So I'm gonna invite um, some folks to come forward to to offer us the Holy Communion. I'm gonna pray over us that we come to this table not afraid of our least of these, not afraid of our own shortcomings, but we come to seek healing, to find solace. And when Jesus says, come you who are weary and heavy laden, that means us. We get to step out of those systems of violence and competition and come and be loved by God. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honor it is to come alongside of you as you rescue this world from violence and corruption as you give us the path to step out of those broken cycles of needing to perform and achieve and be awesome according to the human being's standards and competition, and that you invite us to your table just as we are, to eat with you, to hear that sweetness in your voice as you call us your beloved, that we don't need to perform in order to earn your love, but just to sit with you, to enjoy your company, and to enjoy the presence of our brothers and sisters around us. So Heavenly Father, as we continue on in worship, will you speak to each of us about our least of these and how we can love them as you do and us seeing the kingdom advance. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.